in the way of everything we want to do, whether it's empowering women, whether it's, whether it's freeing black communities from criminalization, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, and of course, decarbonizing the world, fascism stands in the way. You can't ignore it. It's standing between you and the, and the progressive objective. And it is really interested in you, even if you are not interested in it. You know, no matter who you are, it will stop you. Hello, Internet. Thanks for deciding to tune into this podcast. Things have been going really well recently, and I can only thank my audience for deciding to tune in. In the coming weeks, I have some really huge and fascinating interviews set for release. So please be sure to like, share and subscribe if you want to help out the show and make sure you don't miss any of the amazing content. Before we get started, I've just got a few short messages. First off, the first round of crowdfunding for my book, To The Moon, The GameStop Saga, has now come to an end. Thanks to everyone who contributed. I still have 20 spaces left in the acknowledgements for names, so if you want to pre-order the book and get your name in there as part of telling the wonderful story of The GameStop Saga, you'll find links to pre-order the book in the description below. Next up, I have two sponsors for the show today. First off, ExpressVPN, the internet's number one VPN. You can protect your browsing data from your internet provider and from prying eyes by going to ExpressVPN today and getting 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN. Use it for privacy, safety, or just to watch Netflix shows from another part of the world. You'll be stunned at the amount of extra content you can access just by setting your location to somewhere new. Secondly, I have a wonderful podcast to tell you about. But no, it's not this one. Comedy and science are two concepts that naturally go together? Well, maybe not always, but Australian comedian Anthony Jeannot has found a way to fuse these two concepts. Highbrow Drivel is a podcast where scientists and academics meet comedians in a light-hearted and informative free-for-all chat. Each week, Anthony is joined by a new stand-up comedian and a new expert to discuss their field. Some of the latest episodes have included How the Brain Understands Sound, What is Burnout and Why Does It Happen, and my personal favourite of the last few months, Did Hippies Ruin Psychedelics? Some of these issues can be difficult to tackle, so I personally love the combination of comedy and science that Highbrow Drivel provides. It makes me laugh, and teaches me new things at the same time, like a clown teaching philosophy. So if you want to hear the big topics of our generation, the brain, space, climate science, psychedelics, and beyond discussed with both levity and humor, be sure to check out Highbrow Drivel wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find links for everything in the description below. Anyway, here's the podcast. So, uh, hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm here with uh, Paul Mason, journalist, filmmaker, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's favourite economist, I think you were once called. Once I was his favourite economist, uh, not sure now. <laughs> and um, author of the new book, How to Stop Fascism. This is the proof copy, the real hardback one is much more attractive looking. Um, so Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks very Great much for you. joining me. Yeah, fantastic. So um, the first question I want to basically ask you is, what is 
fascism. Can you give us like a brief definition to, to frame the conversation with? Well, people love definitions. Mm -hmm. um, what I will start by saying is that definitions are not explanations. Um, the problem we have with uh, fascism is that it morphs, it moves, it's a, a work in progress. But I would say it's a far right, ultra right wing, violent movement that wants to end democracy and indeed end what we call modernity. That is everything that happened since, since the French Revolution of 1789. It is intrinsically racist, although the, ra the, the form that race, the racism takes differs from country to country. In the modern world, it is equally uh, violently anti-feminist. Um, it always leads to genocide. It always radicalizes in power if it gets power. A lot of the definitions you'll, you'll come across at school or college are what made Hitler's state fascist. What I'm interested, there's no fascist states in the world today. What I'm interested in is what makes a, how do we define or understand a far right movement? And how do we differentiate it from the much bigger and formally speaking democratic um, parties like Vox in Spain, three million voters, uh, Rassemblement National in France, which will come neck and neck next year mm. with Macron. Uh, these are not fascist parties. The problem we've had is that political scientists spent, you know, a good 20 or 30 years working out definitions that could say there's a fascist, there's a right wing populist. Uh, but, but the the boundaries and the category uh, pigeonholes are bleeding into each other mm. because of what's happening, as I argue in the book, in people's heads. People's heads don't obey mm. these rigid definitions. Mm. And we see it all around us. We see, even today as we're speaking, a massive far-right movement of people mobilizing in uh, the cities of Brazil, mm. called by the president. He's not a fascist. Uh, most of them are not fascist. They're right-wing individuals who are racist and hate women and you know hate abortion and the rest of it. Mm. But the, the net result is a fascist movement. Um, so yeah, don't be so keen to kind of stack up definitions. Mm. What we better do is understand the phenomenon mm. in its roundedness and in its in its the way it changes and the way it develops. Mm. Now, one of the things that uh, I was trying to get a handle on when you, when I was reading the book was um, the, as you kind of mentioned there, there's like a bleed from the far right into the rest of the right wing. And and something that, that quite a lot of commentators have actually pointed out in the past is that the right tended to be quite good, um, at least traditionally, at kind of annexing that part that was quote unquote, not okay. That they were very good at sort of annexing the racists from the broader right. Do you think that's kind of stopped? Do you think that's that's becoming harder for the right to do? So that was the theory when, when right wing populism emerged. Remember, for some of your listeners who'll be young, mm. will not remember that politics until about 1989 was just in most countries two or three parties. Mm. You had a socialist party, you had a conservative party, often you had a liberal party. That was it. Mm. Now we've got since the 90s, the rise of what we call right-wing populism. So these are people like Nigel Farage and UKIP, people like Marine Le Pen and the, her party, the Rassemblement National, the National Rally mm. in France, who basically don't like immigrants, 
Uh, they mobilize the sentiment of people who don't like immigrants. Uh, they are often um, nostalgic for mm. the kind of country that used to exist. So, you know, kind of white only. I mean, I'm we're sitting at two stories above uh, a street called Peckham Rye, Rye mm. Lane. Okay, Rye Lane, Peckham. You know, when I, when I first came to London, this was a white area. You look outside this window, I, I walked down the street. I was one of the few white people walking down the street. Mm. Um, now, that's a big change if, you, if you've lived through it. Yeah. If you don't like it, it's a big change. And what right-wing populism did, it mobilized the center. I love it, by the way. <laughs> I, 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 London today is the most vibrant I've ever lived in it. But right-wing populism said, things are changing too fast. Our culture, white, imperialist culture, you know, we, Britain, you know, claimed the right to rule half the world, more than half the world. They don't like the fact that that's gone. Um, okay, another theory was that by creating those parties, distasteful though they are, it hoovers up people who would otherwise become fascist. Mm. So, so in my hometown, it's called Lee in Lancashire, in uh, near, near Manchester, it was the classic Labour Tory liberal. And then out of nowhere, about 5% of people started voting for the BNP, mm. which I would say is a fascist party. Um, then 20% voted for UKIP. Mm. And then that 20% that voted for UKIP switched to the Tories mm. and the town has now voted Tory in its majority for the first time in history. Mm. So we see an evolution. The problem is worldwide, we are no longer seeing those right-wing populist parties which accept democracy and work within it even if they don't like it, mm. whose racism is verbal rather than violent. They're no longer playing that role of hoovering up or dampening down or what I call in the book a firewall against fascism. In fact, the firewall is on fire. It is the right-wing populist formations and people themselves that are in, that, that are themselves in crisis and being dragged to the right. And nowhere clearer uh, do we see this than in Trump's America mm. and post-Trump America. We see the look if we call the right of the Republican Party a right-wing populist group, so the various foundations think tanks, mm. the various state-level governments who've used right-wing populism, open racism, for example, anti-woman anti politics. Uh, that party is now the willing host for fascists. That party is the apologist for a fascist uprising that took place on the 6th of January in Capitol Hill. So the new situation we're, we're facing is that, is that right-wing populism is no longer a firewall, it's on fire. And that what's no matter how rigorously you define sort of organization so you can say okay let's look at I mean there's this weird group in Britain patriotic alternative it's a straightforward neo-nazi group it's tiny you could easily define that as fascist mm -hmm. you could easily define if you wanted to UKIP even in its no much more further right iteration that it's gone through since Brexit you could see it's kind of right-wing populism in transition towards fascism mm -hmm. the problem is so many of its of the followers of that politics are not really in any, anything mm. where they organize art, secret Facebook groups, closed Facebook groups, telegram channels, and the rest of it. Tommy Robinson, the most identifiable far-right figure mm. in Britain, had a million followers on Facebook before, many, really? before Facebook shut it more than a million. 
Facebook shut him down. Only Jeremy Corbyn had anything like that. At the, ti at the time, Facebook shut uh, down Tommy Robinson. Theresa May, the Prime Minister, had about half the number mm. of Facebook followers. Cadbury's Cream Egg, one of the most famous brands in Britain, only has two million. So I'd say, you know, that million mm. is about the, about the size of the audience for British fascism. And the problem is their ideas are getting crazier, more, more theoretical. Mm. So you know me, people on the streets who used to go, I don't like migrants, their food smells funny, I don't like the way they dress, mm. I wouldn't like Peck and Roy Lane. Uh, they now say, I don't like Marxism. And they will quote various so esoteric Marxist figures, like a, a, a theorist called, called, <laughs> called Adorno, and another guy called Horkheimer. And, and these were just cultural theorists, but they're, but like the far right activists are obsessed with a theoretical fascism mm. that is very attractive if you're a kind of little boy lost mm. in the world and you hate the world as it is and you don't like what's happening to you in the world, suddenly you don't have to kind of rely on your prejudices. Mm. You, you've also got a theory. And in the book, what I tried to do was to explain to people what that theory is, how it hangs together and why it's so attractive to people who don't like the modern multi-ethnic feminist uh, globalized world we live in. Mm. Now, one of the things um, I was trying to get a handle on as well when I was reading was the something you've mentioned there is that okay, so you think that the the audience perhaps for for fascism as you sort of broadly defined it in Britain is about a million people. Vaguely. Well, I, I mean that's just going from from guessing. The BMP. Mm. Uh, got at its height about 900,000 votes in one European election. Mm. That was then hoovered up by UKIP. Tommy Robinson once had a, a million followers on Facebook. So that kind of, that's two clues, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the, the problem is the hardening of what they believe and the kind of, it's like, you know, you can start from a series of prejudices, mm. but if you then build upon it an alternative worldview that rejects facts, that rejects science, that rejects um, you know human rights and universality mm. as as I the core ideas of post-war the post-war world. Mm -hmm. What's really easy is to drag in other people. Mm. So what we're seeing right now is the far right, you know, kind of exists specifically and discreetly as a bunch of small sectarian groups and their telegram channels, mm. which probably have about twenty to thirty thousand people on them. But then if you if you look at the number of people who are interested in anti-vaccination or anti-mask or climate denial, that's much, much larger. And the purpose of modern fascism is to build itself out into those uh, much wider layers. So a young mum who comes, who comes along and thinks, yeah, I'm really against child trafficking. You know, mm. I've got a young kid. I don't want my kid to be stolen by a paedophile. Okay, then they read that Hillary Clinton and Tom Hanks and all the Hollywood elite are child stealing mm. killers who are going to harvest the blood of children. They're all in on the these, Central Park. Yeah, yeah. yeah. on the um, on the uh, QAnon website. Mm. Uh, Q, sorry, the QAnon um, bulletin board. Mm. And for people with, you don't have to even be uneducated. All that really has to happen is your belief in truth and evidence mm. has to be dislodged. Mm. You. You're not even, you won't even believe your own eyes. 
what you will believe is something that makes you feel like you belong in the world that you're in. Mm. Um, so that's why we're seeing, you know, as we speak in Britain, my biggest worry right now is the anti-vax movement. It's operating mm. more and more, not, not everybody in it, but the hardcore are operating as a quasi-fascist movement. So they're invading public institutions, the MHRA, Health Authority, the BBC, ITN, uh, and what do they do? They, they rush the doors, they attack the police, and then after failing to attack the police, the, the front guys who are all big muscly guys, ex-servicemen, or claim to be ex-servicemen, or some of them wanna be ex-servicemen, they then turn around and then they maintain order. Mm. But while that's going on, that the people inside those institutions are being targeted, they're being named, they're being doxxed. That's, you couldn't call the anti-vax movement fascist, mm. but the component parts of it that are putting about this far-right ideology and carrying out violent actions, you would have to worry about. I mean, the, the most recent example, 200 <laughs> veteran ex-service people formed a clandestine network in Britain, it's not from America, in Britain called Veterans for Freedom, V4F, and they were openly fantasizing about kind of launching an insurrection in which some of the people who are giving out vaccines would be harmed. So, hmm. yeah, that's that's the it's like a it's like a you know the black hole in space that pulls everything else into it. Hmm. My my argument in the book is that modern fascism is like a an ideological black hole that can pull a lot of confused people towards it very rapidly. Okay, so that that sort of brings quite nicely to like one of the things that I've become intrigued in is that so i think you've, you've rightly identified um i think you've articulated it better here actually than in some parts of the book um in that it, like it what you've written makes more sense now that I've, I've been able to ask you about it but that it seems that there's a lot of people who would be attracted to some of the ideas that you're saying have fascist elements within yeah. it but that aren't necessarily bad people at no. all people who are maybe like skeptical of um say newer medical treatment yep. someone who's um uh, to move away from the anti-vax thing is to or to someone who would maybe be uh, attracted by the the ideals of what britain stood for in yep. the 50s the 60s the 70s which um aside from the the sort of the, the there was obviously bad parts of that but um i think it was economist um, mark thomas said to me is like if we had the kind of economic growth that we had in the 70s yeah. in the last decade we'd be sitting in a much nicer position especially if it was focused around the same people who were becoming more prosperous in that time um so what do you think is uh, what do you think is the, the the remedy here to stop these movements becoming more extreme um because I see it happening on the right and on the left as well. We're just becoming incredibly polarized. Yeah. And it seems to me that there's at least some economic basis in this, but I think it's more than that. Um, so how would you go about trying to, to, to sort of bring people a little bit away from the extremes well, in this? In the book, what I try to describe is something I call the crisis of the neoliberal self. Mm -hmm. So the word neoliberalism is always contested, mm -hmm. but for me, what it means is a system that existed uh, for since around about 1989 until around about 2008. It was the system in which the free market principles and norms of behavior and ideologies uh, 
were forced into our lives. I mean, I saw it happen I, exactly to the people I'd grown up with. So I was born in 1960. Mm. When I, um, you know, when we had, when we had a, a festival in, in our town called the Miners Gala, uh, you know, I think back to it, everybody, sort of the majority of people on that field, working class people, had seen their wages rise, they'd seen their, their levels of healthcare rise, they had not only free healthcare, free school meals, free dentistry, mm. uh, free milk at school, mm. free education. Uh, rents in council houses were so so small, nobody bothered you know, with what they were. Mm. You could barely remember what your rent was. To see that world smashed and a new world imposed on you where you've got to stab your neighbour in the back. There can be no solidarity. Mm. There can be no belief in society. Margaret Thatcher said it. There is no such thing mm. as society, only individuals. Okay. Mm. It was horrible to see, but then it got better because people could borrow money and because some things like lesbian and gay rights or even women's rights improved mm -hmm. because they were no longer seen as systemic threats. As long as you can, you can have a gay capitalism, you know, the Pink Pound in Soho here in London, then that's not a challenge to capitalism. Okay, so that ideology, if that ideology, the free market is best, stab your neighbor in the back, um, compete, compete, and, and ignore society. Mm. Have just been sold as a kind of well. This is the latest thing. You know, take it or leave it. You could you could say we wouldn't be in that the trouble we're in. Mm. It was not sold like that. We were told you either believe this or you are the enemy. Mm. Either you act according to selfish narcissistic principles, or you the miners. You know, my dad's generation were told you are the enemy within. Mm. Okay, so most people buckled down and they said, okay. Fine, at least we've got a new religion that kind of it explains everything. The market explains everything from who I will marry, where I will, what my job will be, whether my kid will succeed or not, uh, what color jumper do I wear on a Monday morning. The market controls everything in my life. Um, and what's more, alongside this comes the end of history, the claim that yeah. free markets alongside liberal democracies represent the, the pinnacle of human achievement. Nothing better can be imagined. Therefore, anybody who tries to imagine something better is, is seen as destructive, alien, wrong. Okay, fine. Then it blows up. Then the whole thing collapses. 2008, mm. I was standing there on New York's Fifth Avenue outside the HQ of Lehman Brothers when it shut down. The fifth, what the top five one of the top five banks in the world bankrupt overnight. The people coming out with their, their stuff in cardboard boxes. And after that, the stock market collapsed. Capitalism could have imploded. Mm. And after that, sure, you've got free markets and you know, there'll be you know, this place where we're in, you know, you've got the workspace and outside you've got coffee shops and you've got African butchers, but none of it would exist if the state had not stepped in mm. and saved the market. And so, the ideology makes no sense. The market controls everything. It doesn't. Mm. The state basically has saved capitalism and we only you know, get out of bed in the morning and go to work because the state borrows and prints money. Right, now most people, so you can keep an, an economy going on this kind of life support of borrowed and printed money for a long time. Mm. But what you can't do is force people to believe that it makes sense. So the ideology of neoliberalism has evaporated. Mm. Now, okay, so then people ask, well, is there, are there any other ideologies? And because of this all-seeing nature of neoliberalism, it explained the market, it explained politics, it explained, explained geopolitics, it explained the end of history mm. and why nothing better would ever be uh, possible. People started to look for 
an all-explanatory viewpoint that explains the world just as well. Mm. And because I argued the left failed to offer them something uh, coherent and, and persuasive, by and large, um, you've started to get people looking for a, a coherent, holistic view coming from the far right. Mm. And what the, the basis of that is the three things fascism has always based itself on. Nature, nation. So what is it now? It's, um, it's whereas kind of the left has based itself on history, you know, class and revolution. Mm -hmm. the, the fascists have always based themselves on nature, nation and war. Mm. And nature, nation and war in their modern forms are what underpin this kind of new radical right-wing ideology. Mm. Now you ask, how do we get people back from it? Yeah. How do we get people it's back from it? It's not even the back from it. It's more that like trying to stop because I, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned on both sides of the aisle that there's that a lot of people sliding towards very extreme sides, and that that, that inherently sort of just will end end us up in a, a bad bad place. I, I don't like the idea of, of of conflict in this. And actually, you say about nature, nation, and war. So war is obviously not good. Uh, uh, yes, as uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan has yep. has kind of shown us, but. Um, the idea of of rely of of sort of focusing on on human nature and the idea of the nation state those two things no. I don't see as inherently bad. No, no, the, no, I don't see them as inherently bad. But let's understand what they mean in fascist ideology. For Hitler, human society was only good when it was behaving like a, bam, a baboon pack. Mm -hmm. um, Hitler, um, Hitler's language is full of suggestions that. When humans are rational, when humans are kind or collaborative, they are soft. Uh, and also nations, when they are kind or collaborate, are, they are soft. And so for Hitler, the idea that nature is, is it's not that, of course, we all love nature. We love, we love you know, the trees, the countryside, the air, we breathe the sea. It, it's you're it, talking human nature more than no that. no we're, we're talking about the idea that pre-human nature the animal side of humanity is the side that fascism wants to raise and and philosophically um this was you know this is deeply rooted in german right-wing philosophy going back to frederick nietzsche the idea that you know any attempt by human beings to to make themselves better mm. than what they are naturally um is false leads to weakness um, better to just be an exultant bully. What what um, Nietzsche called the blonde beast who runs away laughing, having committed rape and murder, as if he'd just done a student joke. Mm. That's what. So you know, a lot of people think, oh yeah, but he was just joking. But that came to pass. Mm. You know, that came to pass. As I write about in the book, Nazis behaved as if morality was a, was was or any idea that human beings had to be behave in a collaborative and indeed beyond animalistic way was was philosophically alien to them. So that's when I speak about nature being important to fascism, uh, that's what I mean. Though nation, it's interesting, historic fascism was a form of violent ultranationalism. Mm -hmm. So Hitler wanted to remake Germany the you know, preeminent pre nation in the world. Uh, so did um, Mussolini. 
Um, modern fascism is ethno-nationalist in the sense that it would, you, you know, you're Irish, I am Northern English, it would look at the both of us and, and indeed a Polish uh, migrant out here in, in Riley and Peckham and say, you are white. Mm. That's what's important. You are from a race, because scientifically races don't exist. You're from a race that migrated uh, to the, into Europe at a certain point, and then here's where the pseudoscience comes in. Uh, your white skin, along with your evolved, along with your better genetic capacity to mm. think, and that's what makes you the natural ruler over the 90% black and Asian mm. majority of people sitting outside us on this London street. Mm. Um, that's the ethno-nationalism. Is the it was always there in fascism. Theoretically, but now it's to the fore. This is a very important uh, practical uh, practical um, result. First, it means that modern fascists are violently opposed to feminism because they see feminism as suppressing the birth rate of the, the superior race. Number mm. one. Two. What's the second uh, impact of ethno-nationalism? It means that. Modern fascism finds it really easy to collaborate across borders. So, you know, the old fascists were like sort of, you know, the Bulgarian fascists would hate the Hungarian fascists because mm. they had territorial claims on each other's country. Okay. But the new fascism says, well, Bulgarian, Hungarian, whatever, we're all white. Mm. And our main thing is anti Muslim, anti feminism, and anti refugees and migrants. And so they, their ultimate project. In a, in a far more, Hitler only wanted to conquer Europe in a way. That's you know, from, 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 from Land's End to John O'Groats to Siberia was the Europe he wanted to conquer. But that's what he wanted to do. Modern fascism wants the world to end, or the modern world, to end in a global ethnic civil war. And they think in billions, not millions. You know, the, the, there's an eco-fascist, we come to eco-fascism. Eco-fascist writer called Penty Linkola, who died about three or four years ago, who wrote, the earth can only support about a billion people. So the other six, I'm afraid, got to find ways of them not existing. Mm. He even wrote, who misses six million Jews that died in the Holocaust? No, he did, you know, this guy was a deep green eco-fascist. He's saying to save nature, kill humanity. Mm. But when, when we choose which humans to kill, mm. it's the old criteria. Mm. People who look like you and me will be you know, saved. <coughs> People who look like the majority population of Peckham in East London will not be saved. And so I come to the conclusion, late to be honest, I come to the conclusion that that danger is so clear that a second fascist era is not only possible, but would be such an absolute catastrophe that it would be worse than the first time around. Mm. Mm. No, it's... it's um it's actually quite good that you've mentioned uh, the the sort of hatred of feminism there, because it brings brings us to like one of the one of the points that I wanted to ask you about is that the the whole way through the book I was reading your definitions of of fascism or sort of um, more authoritarian uh, yeah. types of people, and I was having this this feeling that perhaps you're going a little easy on the more extremes of the left as well because the i find that you've identified very very accurately sort of a lot of the the roots of people's search for something to 
believe in or like you put it um to, to have like a sense of belonging yeah and that 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 is i think is incredibly accurate like i think that that's um that sense of belonging is something that people are really searching for um i do you see the far left as being as big a threat as the far right just uh, one of the examples i'll give is there i interviewed um a guy called James Lindsay a while ago. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. I've heard of him, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so him and Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrose um, made uh, headlines after they submitted an edited version of Mein Kampf to um, uh, an academic journal that had replaced a lot of the fascist language with um, extreme third wave feminist language. And it got published. Yeah. And it just sort of um, brings to, to into clarity the point I'm trying to make is that I feel like we're uh, we're drifting towards two extremes on both sides of the of the aisle here, and that perhaps you're maybe being a little bit given to an easier ride to okay. the left in but, the same way. Like, and I understand why yeah. it's obviously because that's where you are politically. Well, but. I mean, p politically, I'm a Marxist. Politically, I believe that we need to. Um, leave capitalism behind, that we could run society better without markets. Indeed, the only way we're going to save the planet, you know, and get down to zero net carbon within 30 years is to radically reduce the amount of reliance on market forces and increase the amount of reliance on planning, state ownership, uh, common ownership. So that's where I come from. Now, can the left be too extreme? Yes. And there's the whole parts of my book that point out one of the big problems in the 1920s and 30s was that the communist left was so extreme that it saw liberalism and indeed ordinary socialist parties as fascists. Mm. And since they were much bigger than the actual fascists, it concentrated all its fire on them. So can the left be self-destructive, too extreme? Yes. We'll come to the language issue in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, but let's be clear. Something like one in five of terror convicts in Britain now comes from the far right. To my knowledge, there is not a single terror convict from the far left. Uh, you, you, there are remaining Irish Republican convicts. You could say, well, you know, Sinn Féin is a, formerly a member of the um, left in the European Parliament. But that's a conflict that is, is gone. Yeah. Um, you, so, you know, one in five terror convicts is from the far right. Um, it's not the left, you know, who are, you know, storming the parliament of the United States of America. It was, you know, in fact, if you think about it, Black Lives Matter turned up in Washington and did a big silent demonstration or so, you know, in, yeah. in, in memory of George Floyd and were, were confronted by rank after rank of riot police. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the left violence, it, it, the left violence has been defensive, sporadic. You know, if you think about uh, the Ferguson riots, if you think about, uh, you know, even when the left, I think, had its greatest moment in the United States, which was uh, during the Occupy Wall Street. The Occupy mm. Wall Street wasn't violent; it was overtly no. non-violent. So, so there is no parallel, and I think we have to resist um, when people throw this at us. Um, well, what about Antifa? Antifa, as the mm. Americans call it. Well, no, it's a, group, a loosely organized group of people who largely sit there to defend themselves against fascist violence. Is, is the violence sometimes perpetrated by those groups advisable? Sometimes not, yeah? It's not tactically a good idea. Sometimes it, it, you have to, sometimes you don't. Does it look good? No, it doesn't. But in the end, the, the point is there are two different projects. The left project is very, you know, is a, 
in historic terms, it's a product of the Enlightenment. It's, it, it says, no matter what our differences are with capitalists and liberals and globalists, we do defend uh, liberal democracy. We defend uh, human rights. We defend universality, the idea that every human being on Earth has the same rights to life and freedom, etc. And generally, I, generally, the left defends science and rationality. Mm. So I think that, you know, liberalism and, and the left have a common interest in, 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 in fighting fascism. And you can't equate, and this is the big danger of the liberals, the liberal danger is to co con continually equate the far, the left or far left with the far right. That's how they get, that's their get out of jail card. Now you talk about James Lindsay and his, and his Helen Pluckrose and their, their book about critical race theory mm -hmm. um, and, or critical theory. Mm -hmm. I think the book is, so I'm a big critic of postmodernism. Mm -hmm. In my previous book, Clear Bright Future, there's a huge attack on postmodernism mm -hmm. because I think that the, the anti-rationalism that we're seeing now, some of it originated out of, indeed, the attack on scientific rationality uh, and on evidence-based um, thinking that came out of postmodernism. Indeed, postmodernism also, and post-structuralism, if you want to be absolutely accurate and talk about Foucault, mm. this uh, Michel Foucault, the French theorist, yeah. they led a simultaneous attack on humanism uh, and claimed the idea that humanity is just a social construct. Mm. So you'll be aware of the idea that gender is a social construct. Mm. Well, I agree with that. Um, but but it's also based on a biological fact, uh, or sometimes based on biological fact. Um, likewise, being human is based on a biological fact. We are biologically different than all other animal species because we have a social history and we have a imagination, language, teamwork built into us. Now, postmodernism started to deny that. So I'm a big critic of that. And some of the surface of Lindsay and Pluck Rose's critique of 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 critical theory, you will also find in, in Marxism. Mm -hmm. um, actually, there's one thing that, that Lindsay hates more than uh, critical theory. It's Marxism, actually. Uh, but but what's a, what are we talking about when we, when we see these language wars? Incidentally, this, this stunt of, you know, submitting a, a, a fake paper mm -hmm. was done, you know, was done 30 years ago. Um, uh, but well, it's very recently as well. No, no, oh, no you yeah, there was, there was, there was another, there was, there was an, a scientist who um, submitted a fake paper just using the language of what was then, you know, really cool, you know, trendy postmodernism. Mm -hmm. And and again, got it accepted. What you just, all you've proved there is that there are fashions in academia and that rigorous thinking needs to blow them apart. Mm -hmm. I've got no problem with that. Critical race theory, though, is interesting because it's not, I don't see it as left. I don't. I see it as progressive. I see it as, as welcome. I would like to have a debate with critical race theorists. Mm. But what it is, is a bunch of people in, in the legal studies uh, area who taken for granted the idea of legal equality under the law as being constitutionally guaranteed to black people. And then through their legal practice discovered, hey, guess what? It isn't. Mm. Um, and they embarked on a search for structural causes of racism. And indeed, if you apply it more generally through intersectionality theory mm -hmm. to, to homophobia, to Islamophobia, and to, to, to sexism. I have no problem with people identifying structural causes and structural foundations of 
of oppressive behaviors. And, in, and indeed, this is the thing that really annoys the anti-CRT people, that the realization that there isn't just white, domin white dominance in a, in a society like America, but white domination as a verb. Mm. Every white person, no matter how liberal and progressive, does play a role in the domination of black and ethnic minority people. And every man, no matter how you know metrosexual, does play a role in, in the subjugation of women. How could they not? Because these are structural things. It's, there's no contradiction between saying you can have progressive men, anti-racist white people, and there be a structural thing deeply embedded in human behavior. Mm. So, so yeah, I don't, I mean, the debate I want to have with the CRT people is what is the ultimate source of these structural problems? To me, it is capitalism. That doesn't mean it's just economics. There mm. is a racialized capitalism. You know, if you are an individual black person, George Floyd, mm. you know, in, in the USA being uh, arrested for, for the latest, you know, what, what was he arrested for? Passing a dud check. $20 note yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Kind of uh, kill, yeah. yeah, so that's 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 uh, the crime of being poor and black mm -hmm. or poor ma or marginalized and black. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can analyze the, the things that brought George Floyd and that, the, that police team that killed him into conflict weren't just race. They were economic, mm -hmm. they were place, they were layers upon layers of history mm. um, and the fears of that white people have that are sexualized fears about black people as well so one you know when it, when a white guy can put his neck on the on the on the on the, put his knee on the neck of a black guy that is speaking to so many insecurities right okay i have what i have a different language and a different approach to why that happens mm. but but put me in the camp of of that of critical race theory versus James Lindsay and co. And I'm with the critical race theorist. It, it's the the this kind of anti-woke, um, and it's very clear, the anti-woke uh, agitation of the American right and far right is yet another conduit created to, I would argue, to drag people away from a quite legit, you can pick up that, you know, Lindsay and Pluck Roseburg and think, yeah, okay, okay, they've got a point, mm -hmm. right? But then the next steps, look what Lindsay tweets, it's constant, constant put downs of people who want to, to want black liberation, who want liberal, women's liberation, mm -hmm. who want to fight against injustice. So this kind of cui bono, this Latin phrase, who, who does it serve? Who does, who, who profits? when people attack CRT um, and it's, it's the far right. Hmm. I mean, I guess this is probably where we, we disagree a lot in that I, I've, I've interviewed a couple of, a couple of people about um, intersectionality and my sense is that it's a bad thing for society to get obsessed with all of our differences. I feel like it's it's really divisive for us to become, because I, I feel like we're getting more and more focused on, on things like race and gender. And, and for me, I feel like we should be focusing on how to maximize the individual and society more broadly, where, where when we get caught up with, with trying to think about 
um, intersectionality um, where you go, okay, so how do we how do we best like make sure everything is perfectly diverse instead of trying to create the best conditions for everyone to have equal opportunity to make the best of themselves? Mm. I feel that the 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 validity in their critique of the the woke yeah. is that we get caught up in in these differences and that ends up benefiting only the i wouldn't even describe them as the far right uh, to me it benefits the establishment class like the 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 people who occupy the upper echelons of power in both the conservative and the labor party the people who who like have have been in those positions of power for the past 40 or 50 years and espouse the ideology of neoliberalism that that we were discussing earlier. Well, I mean, look, I grew up in a world where intersectionality theory didn't exist. What we were left with was largely what we call class reductionism, economic. So, you know, literally, so these streets around us, in, in 1981, uh, erupted into a riot. Okay, and I remember, I was on the left, I was here, I wasn't in the riot, I, I wasn't physically here at the time, but not long after, the left were kind of, you know, kind of trying to sort of rationalize what had happened. And people kept saying, it's because of unemployment. And then people kept saying, uh, you know, it's because, you know, black people are paid less money. And the youth just said to them, no, no, I'm sorry, it's because when we step out of our door, a policeman grabs us, beats the shit out of us because we're black. That's the point. You know, so the left had no theory other than economics about what racism, what caused racism. Of course, it had colonialism, you know, with the kind of colonial hangover. But then why did why did racism keep keep uh, replicating itself? And it was then what was the, the problem that we ran into? So feminists, you know, had a theory that you know men oppress women, and they do. But then suddenly, they were confronted, you know, as these movements converged, and there was a movement, you know, for about ten years, a broad left movement that was anti-Thatcher, anti-capitalist, mm -hmm. in which people said, "Hold on a minute, you're a white middle-class woman. You can oppress me, a black man. Is that not true?" Uh, and indeed. Uh, you're a black man, and indeed you might have been arrested by the cops, but when you stand uh, alongside um, the gay pride demo and shout homophobic insults at us, you oppress us too. So suddenly pe re people realized that, that oppression isn't like a sort of hierarchical layer cake, like feudal society, the king, the bishops, the, the knights, the lords, the peasants. Mm -hmm. it's, it, is, it intersects. It, the, you know, we must look at it from the point of view of the individual. Mm -hmm. The individual is, is a node of many oppressions. I don't think that has to divide people. But what I think you then have to do is say, well, well what's the overall goal? Incidentally, one of the reasons I think people became more, more aware of their identity, over and above the technological thing that people have, you know, identity, uh, they can create an identity through social media, is that capitalism itself has begun to exploit us in multiple ways. So my dad, you know, my mum and dad, they went to work, they earned wages in the form of cash. Mm. They got cash in their, their, their hand, they spent it on stuff. And if they wanted to buy a, a sofa, they would you know, save that cash in a bank. Yeah. That, that was their relationship to capitalism. Bank was for saving, work was for earning money. Today, we earn electronic money. You never see the money you spend. Yeah. So you're not aware of the fact that a lot of what you spend is borrowed. Mm. Likewise, the borrowed, most people don't have savings. They do have borrowings, 
And the difference between stuff I've earned and stuff I've borrowed is not obvious in my bank account. Mm. So what does that do? It creates what we call a stream of financial exploitation, as well as workplace exploitation. Now, on top of that, as consumers, when I walk into a Nike store, or my Brooks is my Brooks is my, uh, my my running shoe. Okay, I love Brooks I, for something. I, I I feel good in a pair of Brooks running shoes. Fine. So I'm co-creating that Brooks brand. Mm. It's not just they create it. I create it by sharing stuff, by wearing it. Mm. No, um, it's exploiting my, me through my consumer choices. Mm. Likewise, we can be exploited through our sex lives, through our personal lives, through our through our social lives, through our music, and. Because these constitute who we are, I think this is why we've become more aware of multiple forms of exploitation. So I don't see this as a weakness. A lot of my left colleagues think if, if all, there is a kind of left nostalgia, if only we could get back to class mm. uh, and everyone would agree that the bosses are the, the enemy and that we, the ordinary workers, are, are not the enemy and we should stick together. Well, in the real world, that's gone. Because today, you meet a young woman met a young black woman entrepreneur from Birmingham. Um, she, she'd, she'd conceived her entire life and future as entrepreneurship, right? So how many companies can I start? Mm. How many people can I employ? There wasn't, and for her, this was a form of solidarity mm. because there wasn't any other form of solidarity. She didn't experience any, full, any solidarity from, for example, the trade union movement. Mm. Um, so the average young person thinks, how do I become a DJ? How do I become a, a Love Island person? How do I become a podcaster? Podcaster, yeah, <laughs> or, or, or influencer. Because, you know, they, their forms of collectivity mm. are different from the ones that I learned in, in the mid 20th century. Mm. I, I just don't think, since my aim ultimately is to defeat fascism and get rid of capitalism and get rid of carbon from the economy very rapidly, I want to do it with as many people as possible. And so I want to try and accentuate the, the things we have in common while respecting the differences. That's a very different landscape in which to be fighting fascism than the one in which I described in the book in the 1930s, mm -hmm. when really, you know, the far left in, in Germany was fishing in the same pond as the far right. Mm -hmm. Young, obviously white, uh, Christian, uh, unemployed. Disaffected. Men, yeah. yeah? Uh, sitting in, I mean, literally the communist pub and the fascist pub looked pretty similar mm. in terms of demographics. They just had different flags, sang different songs and would kill each other if they met each other on the on the street. Mm. Today, that's different. Today, I did, what I, one of the huge strengths of the anti-fascist and anti-racist movement today is it's, a, it's the diversity of society against people who are nostalgic and want a mono, ethnic monoculture. I think that's one of the, the, the things that gives me hope in to be able to in the in thinking we're going to be able to defeat this. Mm. Now I'm aware you're, you're no, pressed for time here. Uh, there's two things that I want to ask you about, and um, I can either give you them one after another or um, in in sort of quick fire succession. Because um, yeah, there's just two two more things I'm curious to to really get your thoughts on. Yeah. Um, the first is uh, whether it is capitalism is the problem or whether it's neoliberalism slash corruption because to me it looks like capitalism has given us a lot of really great things especially when you look at um the way that the country was rebuilt in the in the wake of the second world war and the things like the the economic miracle in in um, east germany once yeah. the wall came down it seems to me like it's a pretty great system that we've allowed to become 
very, very corrupted. I look, I look, it's that Karl Marx in 1848 wrote, you know, the capitalist system is the best thing humanity's ever ever invented, mm -hmm. except. The problem is it, it doesn't liberate us. It, 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 yes, it accelerates economic growth. It unleashes technology. You could even say it, it eventually, after it employed children in factories aged eight and you know stunted their growth, wow. eventually it, it did create a situation in, by the mid 20th century where some people in some countries could 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 you know blossom you know, blossom and flourish in their cultural life yeah i mean it gave us, it gave us the two two or well more of the the most free and diverse accepting just innovative countries in the world in in britain and america well i wouldn't say they were that accepting but um, you the problem more is so more so than quite yeah, a lot of the yeah. world the, all, the problem is however it also gave us world war one and world war two any attempt to say you know that the, you know Catholicism. So, any attempt to say that capitalism? Uh, I'm thinking more about po the post-war period, really. Okay, the post-war period. Um, post-war period was superb. I grew up in it. Rising real wages, mm -hmm. rising uh, uh, meritocracy, uh, the ability to move. You know, I'm, in my family tree goes 200 years that I've traced it on the on the English side because there's a Lithuanian side. On the English side, it goes hat maker, hat maker, hat maker, minor, minor, lorry driver, economics editor of the BBC. <laughs> and that is not about me. That is about, because I bet there were other potential economic editors of the BBC somewhere in my family. That is not, that is not about me. That is about post-war Britain. And, and the problem is neoliberalism destroyed that. Mm -hmm. so neoliberalism reversed it, but it had to because, because the capitalism in which I grew up in which workers were strong and solidaristic and stuck together and had were self-educated and, and had culture. You know, they had brass bands, they had choirs, they had self-organized libraries. It, you know, even the kind of classic dahlia clubs and dog breeding clubs were kind of islands of civilization that they had created. Well, once you smash that, um, you get the world around you, you get the world we live in. And But they had to do it because that was the source of their strength. Rising real real wages meant meant shrinking real possibilities for profit, mm -hmm. and no possibility for this huge profit machine that we have now. Speculative finance, speculative house building. You know, all the apartment blocks along the River Thames mm -hmm. built speculatively could not be built if Wandsworth and Lambeth councils were dedicated to building social housing, mm -hmm. which they cannot do because of the neoliberal system that we're in. So yeah, I mean, I don't want to separate neoliberalism from, from capitalism. It is the logical end point of capitalism. I think it's over. I think the capitalism we're living in increasingly is an oligarchic one mm -hmm. where Trump, Bolsonaro, Duterte, Erdogan, you know, they employ their sons and daughters. They're, they'll try and create dynasties. Uh, the parliaments are eviscerated. Uh, even Boris Johnson basically is playing that game. You know, yeah. Carrie uh, Johnson, as she's now yeah. called, is calling the shots, sacking this person and that person. Yeah. So um, my huge source of hope is lies in the fact that we have the most educated generation mm. ever. They have the technological means to communicate. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, you are. And technological means to communicate with each other and the motive for radical change, which is climate change. We could, you know, we could we could turn fascism into a sideshow if we had progressive parties. I won't even say left. You know, an alliance of liberalism and leftism that was prepared to radically address climate change. Because that, you know, 
Today, when we're recording this, the British government's just decided to spend an extra 10 billion on social care. Good, right? But taking it from the poorest people, yeah. not good. Um, we're going to need to spend something like 250 billion, you know, to sort climate change. And in that, we can create the jobs that people need. We can create the kind of town centres or the village centres or the kinds of, you know, any young person who's been on a train on a Sunday night, you, you know, squashed in there and the, you know, into squashed sitting next to the toilet, you know, you know that kind of world that you guys live in that you're that is is just a world of horribleness. Mm. Just imagine what it could be mm. with a two hundred and fifty billion extra spending. Mm. And but to get it, we're going to have to really take the power away from the people who've got the money right now. Mm. Um, so I, I'm confident we can do that. But in the way of everything we want to do, whether it's empowering women, whether it's, whether it's freeing black communities from criminalization, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, and of course, decarbonizing the world, fascism stands in the way. You can't ignore it. It's standing between you and the, and the progressive objective. And it is really interested in you, even if you are not interested in it, you know, no matter who you are, mm. it will stop you. Well, one of the yeah, I, the one thing I would say is that I think we need to bring the bring the right with us. So, okay, last last question um, is that: uh, Do you think that the current UK government is fascist or at least authoritarian? Well, I think it's, it's certainly not fascist. Trump wasn't a fascist. It, you know, the right wing populism isn't fascism, mm. and of course, the government couldn't be compared to a fascist regime. You know, which had abolished parliament, abolished parties. Mm. Yeah. Uh, could could jail people at will overnight and disappear them. Mm. So no, but that let's remember that's what a fascist regime is. Mm. The British government is increasingly authoritarian, not just in its desire to you know sort of push back migrants as they cross the channel mm. and to you know remove voting rights from people by making them show ID. It is it is authoritarian in the sense that it's depicting all forms of opposition as sort of semi-criminal. Mm. The idea that, you know... It's a good way of putting it. That, that you, you can only be a conservative. The only safe government is conservative. So anything else is not allowed. So one thing, you know, Scotland is ruled by the Scottish National Party. It's just a liberal leftist party. It's not radical in any sense. But this, the SNP is almost treated at times by the conservatives as if it were an insurrectionary, you know, sort of uh, national revolutionary party. Mm. Um, that's not good. And I fear, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the ultimate tell? You know, these guys, the Tories, stood up during the Euro 2021, uh, you called Euro 2020 competition, and said it's okay to boo the national football team because, you know, because they're kneeling down and taking the knee. Now, that's a strange conservatism. You know, the old conservatives would, would have just at least said, support our team. You know, um, yeah, yeah. we may not agree with what they do, but, you know, we liberal, you know, but no, they said it's okay to boo them. Yeah. And when they lost, you know, there were Tory MPs sending messages, they, they lost, not our team, somebody else's team. Mm, that's a bit weird. That's, that's the tell of, of the influence of far right thinking. Because like the extreme form of that is the American far right this month cheering the victory of the Taliban. Saying, you know, the Taliban have defeated our country, hooray, because that shows that we can defeat what they call the gay regime. Okay, so, but yeah, I worry about the Tories. I'm more worried about the kind of plebeian mass base that is not really engaged with the Tory party, that's engaged with the Facebook groups and the Telegram channels, and is fantasizing about race war. When you meet someone who's fantasizing about white genocide and race war, and that feminists are, you know, killing the white race, you met a fascist.
Mm-hmm. And, and we need to be aware what it is and the way to fight it, political alliances, tough regulations and laws on the extremists, and rekindling what I call the anti-fascist ethos, being proud to stand in the tradition of the people who went to Spain and fought against fascism, gave their lives. They used to be heroes in this country. Now, you know, we need a new generation of heroes and heroines who are prepared to stand up and say, never again. Mm. Or as Marian Tursky, one of the few Auschwitz survivors left, told me when I interviewed him, he said, never again is now. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Paul, uh, thanks a lot. It's been it's been a pleasure. Um, I know you have to run, so I'll just yeah, thank you for your time, everyone. Uh, check out Paul's book, How to Stop Fascism. Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. Don't forget our sponsor, ExpressVPN, and my book, Brexit: The Establishment Civil War, can both be found in the links in the description below. And also, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow. Until next time, thanks for listening. The animal dragged a child around its enclosure. The child had fallen into that enclosure. Officials are now defending their actions. ABC's Alex. A few things I am not. I'm not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. There's no panic selling. These people, you know, they may have bought at $4, sat through $400, went back to 40, went to 350, back down to 110, and they have not sold. All they've done is bought more. And there's no answer for that. There's no, you know, it, it is like art of war mastery by a bunch of idiots who should know better. And they're just, they're just like, I'm not fucking leaving. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. What's been happening on Reddit and in social media and in the marketplace has never been seen before. Uh, the short 70, 60, 80% of a company, let alone 140%, I think a lot of people universally believe something is wrong there. They're powerful, they want to stock higher. It's child's play. Why ever sell into the maw of Wall Street? Yeah, Reddit bets. Why? 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 But everyone's wrong. It's like the big short again. Or more like the big short squeeze this time, right? So here we got the fox guarding the hen house. And one of the hens is complaining. The fox is out to kill us. And the farmer says, I'm sorry, the fox is in charge of the hen house. Whenever there is not billions, but like trillions of dollars involved in something, it I, I argue that nothing is off the table. The way they have absolutely cheated, stolen, robbed everyday people so all our hedge fund billionaire friends can get out and not get killed is one of the most remarkable, illegal, shocking robberies in the history of, in plain sight. Super Stonk and the other communities that have emerged are a hive mind, the likes of which we have never seen before. It's madness and brilliance, insanity and genius all rolled into one. It's very possible that Citadel will be gone in a few months. And and not just Citadel, but the entire financial system has the potential to come crashing down. These crooks 
continue to gamble recklessly with the world economy and this could be the moment that they finally get their justice. You've got maybe 10 million people doing this who now own, you know, probably more than 100 million shares and eventually, you know, they might own everything. 